If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 22, which will be our text, but we will come to it uh, later in the sermon. So just keep your fingers there. As I've mentioned in previous weeks, uh, whenever I teach uh, at the university, the first lecture in any course is on worldview. That is, if we're going to understand people in the past or even people in the present, but who are different from us, we need to understand how it is that we view the world. What are the basic assumptions that we hold that we're not even really aware of? And what are the assumptions that they hold as well? What we've been doing, this is our fourth Sunday, is looking at a kingdom worldview. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us what the kingdom is and who we are if we're in the kingdom. But how are we supposed to think if we are children of God, if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven? And so in this series, I've tried to show what are the assumptions, what are the presuppositions that we hold as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We've looked at three questions thus far. What is first cause? What is the nature of creation? And what is a human being? We've spent two Sundays thus far looking on the question on what is a human being. As I tell my students, this is the big question of the 10 questions that I propose to them. This, this is the big one. I hope today to wrap up um, our discussion of what it means to be a human being. I was telling Dave and Tom um, the other day, this could be a series in itself, and I, I, I don't want that to happen, so we'll try to wrap it up today. What we've seen thus far is to be a human being is to be an embodied creature. We are made in the image of the Creator. What we find in Scripture in Genesis 1, is God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. This runs contrary to much thinking today in which people believe that they can, well, they believe in self-creation. You know, they can change who they are. Um, The social imaginary basically says we can do whatever it is that we want. But we are human creatures, we have bodies, we are embodied. As I said last week, although we cannot be reduced to our bodily functions, we are more than our bodies. Our bodies, in fact, do matter. They are important. This has been one of the struggles the church has had through the centuries, that, yeah, it's our spirit that's really important, and the body is nothing because we're going to die and it's going to turn to dust. But in fact, our bodies are quite important. Um, In Genesis 2, in the telling of the creation of the first man, the Lord God breathed, uh, formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We are a combination of material and immaterial. We are created from matter, but we are given breath. We are given life, living existence by the very breath of God. We are our bodies. We are our souls. The two are one. We tend to think of ourselves as being Two, but in fact, we are one. I read this quote to you last week. Let me read it again. According to this verse, the one I've just read to you, God did not make a body and put a soul in it, like a letter into an envelope. He formed man out of the dust. By breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. Insofar as it lived, it was a soul. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. 
Another writer put, man does not have a body, he is a body. The body is the soul in an outward form. So we are animated dirt, animated dust, if you wish. And we have the very breath of God. And this remains the case even after the sin of Adam and Eve. We still bear the image of the creator, just as Adam and Eve did before the fall. As we saw, to be a human is actually a great responsibility. And the responsibilities can be or should be fulfilled in vocation or calling and in devotion. To be human is to have a purpose. We are not purposeless. And I think that many today would agree with the fact that we are to have a purpose. But a kingdom worldview holds that God is the one who gives us purpose. We don't create it. We don't choose it ourselves. It is God who gives us purpose. We saw last week as human beings, not only are we embodied, we are dependent. We are wholly dependent upon God. Nothing we have has not come from God. Everything we have is gift. Um, And this radical dependency, I think, is quite different from what the culture tells us. Our culture tells us we want to be independent, but we, in fact, are dependent. Again, another quote from last week. Um, We are radically dependent upon our parents, families, and friends, or other responsible persons, from the moment of our first breath and all through our formative years. And we are radically dependent upon God. For among manifold graces and loves, the blessedness of everlasting life. Radical dependence challenges the ultimately isolating ends, absolutized in our postmodern time. See, our culture prizes independence, freedom, autonomy, individualism. The reality is we are, in fact, dependent creatures. We are dependent on our families, on our communities on the civil amenities, but ultimately we are dependent upon God. Today I want to wrap it up and just talk about some other aspects of what it means to be human. Um, The first thing I want to say is that we are personal. We are persons, but we are personal. And the the first question was, what is first cause? Um, That which comes before all things. It's the cause of everything that follows. And the issue, I said for me, is ultimately, is first cause personal or impersonal? Did we come out of impersonality, some force that brought life into being? Or did we come into being because of a personal God? As I said, the only cause or the only kind of cause that could be a true first cause has to be personal, has to have personal agencies. So, If first cause is personal, that is God, and we are made in the image of God, then we are to be personal as well. We are persons. We are to have personal interactions. We are to, in fact, have relationships with one another. We are not simply to be isolated and to be on our own. I think the surrounding culture might assent to that. Um, But there is a sense in which creation and other things and other people even are viewed as material for us to use for our own purposes. And the idea that we need to personally relate to other people, that we need to personally relate to creation, 
it, it's sort of there in the back of our minds, but I think a lot of people would say, no, people are here to entertain me. They are here for my benefit. Uh, creation is here for me. Um, I think as our culture moves farther and farther away from the world having meaning, God-given meaning, it also moves away from the idea that we as human beings have purpose and we cease to act and think in personal terms. So to be a human being is to be personal, to have personal relationships. Secondly, we have capabilities. The question comes up, are we animals or are we different from animals? It's a question that the teacher in Ecclesiastes deals with. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. So says the teacher. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Yeah, the teacher's like, I, boy, human beings seem to be just like another form of animal. Is there any difference? You bury uh, an animal body, it will turn to dust. You bury a human body, it will turn to dust. Seem to be the same says, we don't know, does the spirit of the human go up and the spirit of the animal go down? The teacher is struggling with these questions. We are not animals, and we have certain capabilities. We have consciousness, we have volition, that is, we are able to will, to desire, to aspire, to act on something. We're able to engage in interest formation. That is, there's so many things around us, but we can say, these are the things that are important to me. These are the goals I want to achieve, and these are the things I need in order to achieve that goal. We have emotions, deep, complex, and intense emotions. We don't merely, like animals, feel pain or pleasure or fear. We're also able to enjoy as well Um, as suffer extremely profound, complicated, and overwhelming events of feeling, emotion, mood, sentiment, and passion. We feel deeply. We have emotions. And this isn't just, oh, this is the way I survive. You know, fear, you know, know, should I, in fact, fight or flight? No, no, it's much more than that. We have memory, uh, episodic, short-term, long-term remembering. We are creative. And interestingly enough, we are not stuck with what we have. Because some people would say, well, look at animals. They are creative. They can create certain things. But in fact, human beings can imagine something that does not yet exist and then create something. We have that capacity because we are human beings and we are made in the image of the creator. We're able to engage in material cultivation and development. I love the passage in Psalm 104. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that glands the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. And then later in the same Psalm, these all, that is animals, look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. 
When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. But I don't know if you notice a difference. God gives grass to the cattle and plants for man to cultivate. So it isn't just, you know, whatever's available, but we actually can cultivate. And then we can bring forth food, wine, oil, and bread. These things don't grow from the ground. Things grow, we have to cultivate them, and then we have to go through various procedures. You have to harvest uh, with wheat, um, and then you have to take the husk off, and then you have to grind it up. You put yeast and water, and you make bread. Um, This is something as human beings that we have the capacity to do. There are many other capabilities that mark us as human beings. But then the question is, are we animals? And we are not. However, uh, as I taught through Genesis in the past, I point this out. We were created on the same day as cattle, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals. It's not like we had a whole day to ourselves. We were created on the same day as land animals. And as such, I think there is a bond between us. I think this is what the teacher is hinting at. Um, And I don't think that we should look at creation or animals in particular as simply things for us to use, things for us to eat. Um, We share that day of creation when God made us. Scientists tell us that we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, 90% of our DNA with cats, 82% with dogs, Not sure what to think of that. Um, 80% with cows, 69% with rats, and 67% with mice. We share something because they are creatures and we are creatures. But we are not animals. We are not animals. The third thing that marks a human being is dignity. And this is tricky because dignity in our time has been mangled, has been twisted to mean basically you have to Uh, accept me on my own terms. If you don't accept me as what I say I am, then you're not showing or you're not acknowledging my dignity. In a kingdom worldview, dignity is what has been given to us. We are creatures made in the image of the creator and the creator gives us dignity because we are made in his image. You might say, well, Damon, that's a no-brainer. You'd be surprised. Uh, Steven Pinker uh, is a professor of psychology at Harvard, a well-known writer. And in response to uh, a book called Human Dignity and Bioethics, it's a 555-page book that was commissioned by uh, President Bush. He established a commission to look at the issue of bioethics. Um, Anyway, the, the title of his article in response is The Stupidity of Dignity. He said, this collection of essays is the culmination of a long effort by the council to place dignity at the center of bioethics. In other words, dignity is really, really important, okay? Uh, The general feeling is that even if a new technology would improve life and health and decrease suffering and waste, it might have to be rejected or even outlawed if it affronted human dignity. And then he writes, whatever that is. The problem is that dignity is a squishy, subjective notion hardly up to the heavyweight moral demands assigned to it. The bioethicist Ruth Macklin, who has been fed up with loose talk about dignity, 
intended to squelch research and therapy, threw down the gauntlet in a 2003 editorial, Dignity is a Useless Concept. Macklin argued that bioethics has done just fine with the principle of personal autonomy. We don't, we don't need anybody giving us dignity, okay? The idea that because all humans have the same minimum capacity to suffer, prosper, reason, and choose, no human has the right to impinge on the life, body, or freedom of another. If you read this essay by Mr. Pinker, his, I think his primary problem with the commission is there are just too many Christians on it. Um, he's just really unhappy that President Bush selected so many Christians to be on this. But then he gives his objections to this idea of human beings have dignity. He says, first, dignity is relative. One doesn't have to be a scientific or moral relativist to notice that ascriptions of dignity vary radically from with the time, place, and beholder. So, yeah, you might have dignity, you might not. It depends when and where you are. Um, so for him, dignity is assigned by human beings. Secondly, dignity is fungible or exchangeable. Okay? The Council and Vatican treat dignity as a sacred value, never to be compromised. Okay? Then he says, in fact, every one of us voluntarily and repeatedly relinquishes dignity for other goods in life. Getting out of a small car is undignified. Well, there's a difference between dignified and dignity. Okay? And he confuses the two. In a certain condition, I may not look dignified. If you're sick, if you're throwing up, not very dignified looking, but you still have dignity because you're made in the image of the creator. And then thirdly, he said dignity can be harmful. Well, yeah, if it is assigned by human beings, they can give it and they can take it back and say, no, you have no dignity and treat you as less than human. But what if, Mr. Pinker, what if dignity is something assigned to us by the creator? The one who created us, the one, in fact, who made us in his image. He could have made us into anything he wanted. He chose to make us in his image. The one who communicated and continues to communicate with us. A kingdom worldview holds that persons ought not to treat other persons as things. To turn a you into an it is, in fact, to deny personhood. Human beings have God-given dignity. They may not always act like it, but that's beside the point. They are made in the image of the creator. One writer, in writing about this, a, a Christian writer says that one of the great ironies is that those who argue against human dignity can do so because they have been given personhood, which includes dignity. The only reason you can argue against dignity is because God has given you dignity. One of the great ironies. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Even when we are angry, which I think is when we are most likely not to treat other people as human beings, even in our anger, 
We are to treat our fellow human beings with dignity. We are to recognize that they are image bearers of the Creator. Have you ever noticed that sometimes, and I don't know if you do this, but you hear people when they are castigating or berating someone, that there's, there's a tendency to use some type of animal. You're, you're a pig. You know, you're a dog. Um, no, you're a human being. I'm angry with you at this point. I'm mad at you. But you are still made in the image of the Creator. Now, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 22, this is where our text fits in. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We are to recognize that we are all human and we are to treat others as we ourselves treat ourselves. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are to understand that they have dignity. The fourth and final thing is a question of rights. Actually, it's not the final. There'll be one more. <clears throat> Related to dignity is the matter of human rights. And this is a tricky matter as well. We hear a lot about human rights. Uh, on December 10th, 1948, the UN General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, proclaiming inalienable rights to all human beings that are in, to which they are entitled, regardless of race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. By the way, the 10th, that was Friday, is uh, Human Rights Day. Okay, So this is something that the UN has put forward. There are 30 rights that are listed, but even in our own Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, okay? that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But this brings up a key issue. Who gives us these rights? Side note, there is a distinction that is made between natural rights and legal rights. That is, the natural rights are those which are not dependent on any laws. It's just what everybody who's a human being has any time, any place on this planet. Okay? This, these are rights, in essence, that are given by nature. Legal rights are those which are given by the state. Okay? They're man-made, which means they can be taken away. They can be given, they can be taken away. We've seen in this series that a shift occurred where people no longer talked about creation, they began to talk about nature. And without, with, since you don't speak of creation, you don't talk about a creator, you talk about nature, and then various metaphors emerge, the book, the clock, laws that govern things. And so nature now is seen as all-powerful. It is seen as that which runs by the laws of goodness and wisdom. But how? Why? I mean, how, how is this possible? We have to go back to first cause. It must be personal. Among the problems with the issue of human rights or of rights 
is that it is dependent on an imagined state called a state of nature. This is something we find from Rousseau, for example, that we have these rights that nature has given to us. Um, Another problem is that it holds that the fundamental right is the rights to preserve over means of personal happiness. It rests on the principle of self-love. The things that I think I need, that I want, that will make me happy, those are the things that I should have a right to. And there's absolutely no basis in revelation. This is simply something that human beings have made up. And as such, it is plastic, it's malleable, it can change from day to day, from generation to generation. Certainly as the case with legal rights. So, when people today talk about human rights, they do so apart from the creator. What they are using, the language they use, is actually the language of power. When people say, I have these rights, they're basically saying, I have power. Give me these things, I have the power. So, as people in the kingdom, what is our view of rights, of human rights? Well, a good place to begin is with the Ten Commandments, in which we are told that we are to respect others, we're to honor our father and mother, we are to have a respect for human life, we're not to commit murder, we're to have a respect for family life, not commit adultery. We're to have a respect for what other people own, do not steal, and a respect for justice. By the way, you thought about this. One of the Ten Commandments is not do not lie. Did you know that? I mean, I think that's usually what we say, but it's do not bear false witness. I think the issue there is justice. You are to say what is true in a court of law. You are to say, this is what is true, because you are to have respect for justice. I think we are also to recognize that we are made in the image of the Creator. And that's why the Ten Commandments begin with not to have other gods, because we're not made in the image of other gods. We're made in the image of the Creator. So. We see the personal nature of being human, the capabilities of being human, the dignity of the human being, the rights of the human being, but then the last thing changes all of this. And that is to be human is to be broken and deeply lost. We've seen that the basis of creation is love. God created the world out of love. And the proper status of human beings is to be dependent But, you know, Adam and Eve and all the rest of us ever since decided we didn't want to go down that path. We pushed that away. We wanted to be independent, not dependent. We wanted to be our own gods. And as a result, our personal nature oftentimes becomes quite impersonal. Our wills have been enslaved by sin. Our capabilities are damaged or misused. We claim independence. We're free, all the while becoming even more dependent and overly dependent, but not on God. We treat other human beings as things rather than treating them with dignity. And we look to others to give us rights, rights that we think we deserve, things that we certainly want. 
And we violate, people violate human beings left and right, treating them with injustice. And the list goes on and on. The question then, and I think this is probably the question for what is a human being is, are human beings intrinsically bad or intrinsically good? When you look at a human being, are they basically good, good people? Or are they basically bad? What we are is broken. We are broken. It's one of the great paradoxes. Uh, Francis Schaeffer put it this way, that we are gods in ruins. We have great capability. We can be creative. We can do amazing things. We have dignity. And yet we are bound by sin. It is fascinating that there are so many things in the culture around us that are trying to fix us. The culture says, no, you're, you're good. You're basically good. Okay, you're a good person. You just need a little bit of tweaking. But in doing that tweaking, if you wish, in trying to attempt to make us better, they in fact begin to erode the things that make us human, including dignity. They begin to take away the things that God gave us as human beings, which in spite of the fall, we still have. Adam and Eve sin. So we have creation, we have the fall. Yeah, but we still have dignity. We're still made in the image of God and God still speaks to us. We are his creatures. So what we find in our culture in many different areas is that things are trying to fix us even though they believe us to be basically good. Um, One writer, Richard Stivers, has a book out called The Media Creates Us in Its Image. And he argues that technology, in fact, suppresses human creativity. Instead of thinking for yourself, you just follow the rules. You just follow the steps. This is how you do it. When you open up your laptop or turn on your computer, there are certain things you have to do. You have to follow. And in the process, you lose a bit of creativity. And in a capitalist consumerist society, we begin to view everything as something to be consumed. We objectify other people. There are entertainers. You know, they're there for my pleasure. They're there to make me laugh or to make me cry, to do whatever, to pick me up. That's what they're supposed to do. We treat other people as commodities. And if you think about it, mass media bombards us with various bits of information, just to see sound bits that, that hit us. And in the process, we become spectators of all these random events. Rather than being whole persons, as God intended, we become consumers and spectators. This is the third Sunday of Advent. And some of you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? Damon, I thought we're in the Christmas season. Why are we talking about such things? Side note, someone might ask, why do you keep going back to Adam and Eve? Why do you keep going back to Genesis 1 and 2? That was in the beginning. That's when everything was fine and everything's not fine now. Why do you go back then? 
we have to go back to the beginning to see what God intended. We have creation, we have fall, we have redemption and consummation. Adam's sin changed everything. It changed everything. But it didn't destroy or erase everything. What we find in ourselves, in creation, and everything around us are things that are spoiled, that are mutilated, that are marred, but they are not beyond redemption. Have you ever heard it said of a person, oh, that person's beyond redemption? It's not possible. Creation, fall, and how important are human beings? Jesus came as a human being to redeem us as human beings. So we are to have dignity. We have value. And it's seen in the fact that Jesus came. And so now during this Christmas season, we should recognize that Jesus came into the world because we have value. Because to be human is important. To be human is to have dignity. In the coming of Jesus, we should recognize that we are broken. We are absolutely broken. Otherwise, as we heard in the promise of forgiveness, why would we hear he's come to save us from our sins? The bottom line, the difference between a kingdom worldview and other worldviews is one word, and that word is grace. Grace. Grace is sufficient. It is sufficient to restore us, to redeem us, to recreate us in the image of Christ. And so as we live as human beings, just walking paradoxes, we have the image of the creator, we have dignity, we have value, we are creative, all these things, and yet we are broken. And that, the only thing that can change us is God's grace, and he brings us into his kingdom. And now that we are in his kingdom, we need to look and think like people who are in the kingdom. And central to this, I think, is understanding that human beings have value. We're made in the image of God, and Jesus came to save sinners. That's us, because we have value. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are surrounded by competing voices, some which speak against dignity, others that insist on human rights, that we have the right to almost everything. We hear nothing about you. We hear nothing of love, nothing of grace. And if we're not careful, we might be swept along and in our actions treat others as less than human. We forget that others are in fact made in the image of the Creator, not just Christians, all human beings. Those who are disabled, disfigured, who suffer from all sorts of maladies, 
who perhaps are emotionally crippled, mentally challenged, These people are human beings and they have value. They're to be treated as such. And as citizens of your kingdom, we are to recognize that each human being, each human life is priceless. Each human being is to be treated with dignity and is to be loved. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Forgive us that we so easily forget this, that we take on almost a consumerist, a commodified view of humanity, treating people as numbers rather than as human beings. I thank you that you have not done this. You in fact sent your son to be a human being, to live among human beings, to give his life to save us, to redeem us. And not simply to take us back to the Garden of Eden, to be like Adam and Eve, but to be something far greater. So we must have value. May we not forget that. In a practical way, in the days to come, as we speak to one another, as we speak to others, may we, in some small way, remember this person is an image bearer of the infinite personal God. This is someone I am to love. This is someone of infinite value. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your truth, your grace go with us as we live in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.